0: Well, hello, John. Hello, Jason. It's another episode of uh, Flight Safety Detectives. Um, It's a beautiful day here in Colorado before I punch out of here to uh, points yonder to, of course, uh, look at another accident as uh, it seems to be my normal modus operandi. I know, uh, John, you just got back from points yonder down south. And Jason, you're up in the uh, hinterlands up in Alaska. I know you had snow the last time we chatted with you. What's going on up there now?
1: Oh well, we had snow again. I'm just hoping it melts before the next round of snow.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, no fall right into winter. That's what I like to hear.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Global warming. Yeah. Yeah. What, What about you? You're in Massachusetts, John. What's going on there?
2: Rain. It's been raining. I've been home here three days. Saturday, I got home Saturday evening. Rain Saturday, rain Sunday, rain yesterday, raining right now.
0: Yeah, well, I presume you're going to be heading back to the airport to go back south where the sun was shining instead.
2: Well, I'm going on the road, but it's southwest. I I go to Louisiana tomorrow and then to Dallas and then to Las Vegas, where we'll, we'll join up in Vegas.
0: Yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, so watch out. Here we come. But uh, Bring money. Well, we... say what? Bring money. <laughs> I've got your bail money. That's all that matters. I've got your bail money. Uh, yeah. So, may not have a lot of influence, but I can sure bail you out of jail. But so, that's what I need. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, you know, every show we talk about uh, accidents that have happened. And at the recording of this particular show, there was an accident this morning involving a uh, Falcon. 20 that crashed down in Georgia at the Thompson McDuffie airport, which happens to be about uh, it's the airport that typically people fly into if they're going to the masters golf tournament down in Georgia, I've done four accidents down there. Um, The, uh, the airplane was on an approach. Apparently the weather wasn't very good. Uh, Just two pilots on board is uh, early information. Um, But it looks like the airplane struck trees, ended up uh, scattering wreckage over an open field. So we'll be following that one. And then uh, there was a uh, tragic accident over in Milan, Italy, involving a Pilatus um, in which a billionaire um, and his family happened to be on board. The airplane, again, had just taken off, I believe, uh, six to eight people on board, crashed shortly after takeoff. Unfortunately, it struck uh, an apartment building. And uh, so there was a large post-crash fire that ensued after that. So we'll be following uh, those two accidents. But uh, here in the States, of course, you know, there's been a a smattering of general aviation accidents over the last couple of weeks. Again, um, several flight instruction related accidents, which really, really concerns me, as I've said on previous shows. So I'm trying to pull some information together to see if there's common denominators and, and that kind of thing. But... Uh, you know, I hope this accident rate slows down so that the three of us can stay home because uh, we're working quite a bit.
2: Yeah. You know, it's amazing. The rush to catch up with the, ast- the statistics from last year. I mean, the accidents were down because no one was flying because of COVID. And now we've got all these GA pilots back in the air and they're making mistakes after mistakes, rookie mistakes sometimes Yeah, that I keep thinking are just because they're rusty and they You know, human beings, what we are, you think that because you've done something well two years ago, you're going to continue to do it well, even though you've touched it in the last two years. Well,
0: that brings us, I'm sorry, John, go ahead.
2: And it sure begins to look like that in in these accidents where where, uh, pilots are just uh, getting in over their head. And if you look at their history, they shouldn't be over their head. So the time off is really negatively impacted many pilots, I guess.
0: Well, that brings us to the accident we're going to discuss today Um, in perusing some of the information in the recent accidents. uh, There was a Cessna 177RG Cardinal that was taking off out of Lake Havasu. And uh, shortly after takeoff, uh, the pilot apparently had some sort of engine issue, didn't actually quit, but According to the NTSB, who actually did write a very good prelim on this particular event, uh, the pilot had uh, repositioned the airplane from apparently his home base to an airport 15-20 miles away uh, to refuel was on the ground very short period of time, and, um, and was taking off it was uh, about 109 degrees in Lake Havasu, which, of course, will knock the density altitude up to around 5,500 feet at that temperature. And uh, during the course of takeoff, witnesses and security video indicated or at least suggested that there was some sort of engine issue developing on the runway. Um, Rough running engine is the the way the NTSB described it. And a derived airspeed or ground speed of around 65 knots. Uh, The pilot got the airplane in the air, was not accelerating. The security video actually captured the pilot um, as he was trying to make, unfortunately, that 180 degree turn back to the runway at a very low altitude. And we all know what happens when that occurs, especially when you, uh, you don't maintain proper airspeed. And of course, bad things happen. It's apparent that the airplane did get into an aerodynamic stall, struck flat terrain, but there was a ensuing post-crash fire that consumed the airplane and the the pilot was fatal. Um, The focus of this particular investigation based on a very complete NTSB preliminary report, including pictures, uh, suggests two things. One, there is definitely a problem with this engine and the maintenance and operation of the engine and then part two will be operational aspects by the pilot in dealing with this rough running loss of power apparently type scenario and what he did to attempt to get the airplane back to uh, to the runway so i've got you two maintenance gurus here let's uh, let's break it down you both have uh, reviewed the uh, the preliminary report with the the pictures so i'll start with you jace Give us, uh, you know, your 20,000 foot view, and then we'll hone in on some specifics.
1: Well, you know, kind of from looking at the prelim, which was ac- actually really good, you know, one of the things that uh, I don't know if you've mentioned it before, and I haven't been on the show with you guys, but one of the things that we do on site as a um, as an investigator on site as part of an NTSB or FAA uh, investigation. When something's been reported that you've had a problem, there was a noise, in engine, something didn't sound right, or, or we know for sure there was a power problem, uh, usually the investigators that come out for those manufacturers, whether it's piston or turbine, you know, we determine what we're going to do by taking a look at the actual components. So in this particular case, it was piston engine. It was a Lycoming IO 360. And so, uh, you know, the NTSB, the FAA, the responding IICs, they're gonna take a good look at those components. They're gonna have a look at it. And normally, depending on the post-crash mechanical damage to components, you, know, you can either disassemble the, the parts there and do an examination or you send them out and do them. In this particular case, um, the examination was done on site. So they picked the wreckage up, moved it to a facility where they took it down. And in this particular case here, um, they found things. So uh, they took the, the engine completely down, took the cylinders off and, and had a look inside and split the crankcase. And they came up with two, this particular preliminary report outlines two really important uh, factual pieces of information in here. Uh, they, they found that uh, the, the, the piston rings were fractured, uh, allowing blow by by the, by the, uh, uh, by the cylinders through, through the pistons. And they also found um, the lifter valves were uh, severely degraded at the surface, if you will, they're starting to come apart. So, you know, it's referred to as cam lifter spalling and, you know, they're starting the corrosion gets into the surface and then they start, you know, coming apart via corrosion. So those two things were noted and, and documented in here. And so that kind of uh, brings us up to another point about, uh, you know, preventative maintenance and, and overall annual inspections.
0: John, what did, uh, what did you see when you uh, were reading the report and saw the pictures?
2: Well, as soon as I saw the pictures, strong evidence of corrosion on the piston crowns, which is something you, in a normal operating engine you don't see. But you can see the blow-by on the skirts of the pistons, on two of them in particular. So it's telling you right off the bat, before you even look, you didn't have to see the broken rings. There's a great big billboard right there telling you. We got a broken ring on this piston. We got a broken ring on this piston. So two out of the four were were clearly obviously having a problem. And then when you read the narrative on how these things fell apart as soon as they started to open the uh, pull the barrels off the the cylinders, uh, I mean, it's obvious this 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 uh, engine had been sick for a while, and somebody was living with it with the problems. That uh, were off, which should have been obvious by the time, by the date of the of the accident, they should have been very obvious.
0: Now, there's a, a couple of other things um, in the prelim. Uh, they did refer to um, oil analysis. Jace, you and I have had these conversations as well as John and I in the past about the critical aspects of doing preventative maintenance, especially at times of annuals or whenever the airplane is in, um, even for just routine oil changes. And that is pilots slash owners. Cause it's apparent that this pilot was the owner of the aircraft. Um, the fact that, you know, even the most benign things are going to be probably your best tools to see, or at, uh, at least predict if there is something that is starting to trend in a negative way, such as this, oil analysis.
1: Yeah, the oil analysis is just really a good tool. A lot of people don't do it just because they think the cost between 1999 and 3599 it really doesn't offer them any sort of real insight into the system but they really do and in this particular case this report that there was attached to the prelim which is which is great i mean when you're just looking at the data um, we can already see that we have a, a lifter issue where materials coming off the lifter so we're going to have an increase in iron so when you just go back and look at the chart if you just don't look at any of the other elements we just go to the iron element you can see back to 2012, there was nine parts per million, and then all of a sudden, in the following one, which just so happened to be a long period, it's been five years between, but it, it triples, and then it almost doubles on the next one after that. So you see a trend. You can you can see the trend right here just in the data that would have led at the next annual inspection. You would think that the the owner operator would have said, "Hey, look, I I need to be looking for this. I, I need to be trying to figure it out," and in some of this, you know. When he was, uh, depending on how he, you know, what type of oil filter assembly he had, whatever he was using, whether it was remote or felt, he should have been seeing something. Because from those, from the pictures that you have in the, in the prelim there, you can see that uh, parts and pieces actually came off of those lifters. Those, those pieces go through and they're caught in different places. They get stuck in the engine, but most, most of them get into the filter assembly. So, you know, there should have been other signs. He should have been looking for other things as you see this trend up.
0: And the and the crown and the crown of those pistons were beat up pretty well, as as you know indicated by the pictures. So you know bits and pieces of uh, of metal are floating through that engine, especially during uh, the course of operation. It didn't necessarily cause a stoppage, but it's evident that uh, there were things circulating and, and getting beat up pretty well in that engine. You
2: know, most people, pilots and and other and others non maintenance personnel. Don't often realize the information that, that can be gathered from oil analysis. You know, when manufacturers make an engine, and sometimes on their critical components, they will use a dedicated material, you know, bronze uh, in bushings as compared to brass in bushings. And when those pieces start showing up in the filter and in the analysis, uh, very often they can recognize where they're coming from. So if they use a specialized material and the lifters that are sitting in a cast iron block or a cast aluminum block, right, they can quickly say that the, uh, the content of the alloys, alloys that are in the oil indicate a lifter failure or it can indicate a cam lobe failure because we used a different steel in the camshaft. And most people that that uh, don't look at oil analysis and study it a little bit don't realize that there's an ocean of information that comes back to you from a good quality analysis of what of your oil.
0: And you don't need to really be a um, you know any kind of expert when it comes to reading that oil analysis, only because usually in the oil analysis it'll tell you what materials have been found what metals and that kind of stuff what the percentages are but you don't have to be a rocket science to, uh, scientist to figure this out that if you you're seeing metal in the in the results you've got some sort of problem and you've got to elevate it now to the next level being i got to take it into a maintenance shop qualifying that statement though it is apparent that this pilot may have also been doing his own maintenance as the owner of the aircraft. That brings on a whole series of issues with regard to thorough and methodical maintenance that's being done on this engine and in the, really on this, this entire aircraft. You know, being able to identify what, what to look at,
2: when to look at it, uh, is a product of being familiar with the product that you're working on. All right, so if you are, an individual in, in this particular case, you're out in the middle of of uh, Arizona, not in a very, not in Phoenix, but out in the boonies in Arizona, and you're doing your own maintenance, how much in are you with other people, shops, uh, that do inspections on a regular basis, and what they're seeing on a reg- regular basis? So it's one thing to do your own and be able to do your own maintenance. It's another thing to be able to recognize the trends that are going on. If you're not following the trends, you're not plugged in with the the, uh, maintenance community to see what they're seeing uh, as they do their work on these airplanes or engines, you're never going to be in front of the curve. You're always going to be behind the curve.
0: Jace, you're up in a place where, you know, of course, everybody's out in the boonies and everybody's got an airplane out in the boonies. So there's probably a high level of uh, of owner maintenance going on. As far as just owner maintenance and, and that kind of thing, um, I, you know, there's not that's not a, a slight against owners performing their own maintenance. But not everybody is cut out of the same piece of cloth with regard to their thorough and methodical um, Uh, performance when it comes to doing maintenance. And when you look at the condition of this engine on this accident aircraft, this stuff didn't just happen overnight.
1: No, it didn't. And, you know, from the trending, I mean, we can actually see from the chart, you know, this actually really jumped after about 2012. So there was a long period of time where data was coming in and it just wasn't getting disseminated. You know, there's you know I brought the, a, a different kind of side subject up before Greg that a lot of people, you know, you know, they get these prelims and they immediately jump on a bandwagon of oh my gosh, it's exactly this. One interesting part about this oil analysis chart that was put in the prelim, unless you've done one of these before, whether you've been to Blackstone or any of the other labs, what everybody doesn't know is this is just the chart. If yeah. the NTSB had put the rest of the document in there, they would have showed us the next section. Where the actual lab put the recommendations in for what you should be looking for.
0: Exactly. There's another exactly.
1: section of this chart that everybody, most people, don't know exists. So you don't have any. We we don't know what the last three in a row what the lab was telling them what they should have been doing after they got it back, and if they did anything or if there was anything corresponding to it. But you're right. There's a lot of uh, owners that take 4313 owner. Uh, operator maintenance, if you will, and, and they, they kind of push the envelope with that, There there is a lot of that. And when they kind of push the envelope on doing those things, uh, like John was saying, you know, they're not in tune, they're not with the local shops, they haven't been, you know, maybe they haven't been reading the latest service letters and service bulletins and mandatory service bulletins. They're not kind of up to date on those kinds of things. And they they really don't know what they're really looking for. It's just if they stumble onto something. You know, one of the other things about the pictures that we're looking at, you know, when John was talking about the blow by, you know, when you have blow by, you've got excessive crankcase pressure. And when you, you and more than likely when you have excess crankcase pressure, you're blowing oil overboard. So what was the oil, you know, are we seeing an oil consumption rate that should have been happening at the same time? So not only are we having a cam, you know, some sort of cam lifter issue, we've got the blow by with the crack rings, you know, is there, there's probably several things here that either he hasn't dealt with before, or maybe he has that he just hasn't put all the pieces together that there was a problem.
0: And with that high uh, crankcase pressure, uh, you'd be blowing it overboard as well
1: it goes right overboard out the breather line and sometimes you're cleaning it up off the bottom of the plane and the hangar floor and out at the ramp and you know so i we don't you know we don't know if they went and took any pictures of where the airplane was parked and if they found anything dripping on the ground you know that's all part of the investigation as part of that you go back the ntsb you know where was it parked where was it at you know and those things that you and i go and look at we look for those things too
0: And and typically, um, whenever you're doing inspections, especially annuals, or if if this airplane was on a 100-hour inspection or something like that, um, of course, you're going to be doing compression checks and uh, maybe even boroscopes. Would the compression check have showed some telltale signs of what was happening with this engine? It's obvious that some of the damage may have even been seen if if a boroscope had been done.
2: I think if you just put your finger over the spark plug hole and turn the engine over, you would have been shocked with, with two of these cylinders.
1: Yeah, at least, at least with two of them. And you know, Greg, when you do a compression check, not only are you just plugging it in and checking for in a Lycoming 60 over 80 or Continental, a master orifice tool reading over 80. You're not just checking that. I always take off the oil filler cap and you put your ear to it while you got it in there. Do you have blow by going in the car? You know, I listen in the exhaust. Well, do we have blow by by the exhaust valve? You know, do you listen through while well, you got the bracket air filter off. Listen into the into the carburetor or the uh, um, air intake, and you're listening to see if you can hear any blow by coming back through that. So I kind of not only just plug in and listen. I'm also checking the other three areas too to see if you know what I'm catching. Because if the number is sixty-eight over eighty, you know, okay, well, where is that number going? And then I just make the round of the three and just kind of listen for that. And just kind of note where it's at.
0: And that's why, you know, when, uh, when you see the entries in a logbook, when compression checks are done, you know, pilots really don't understand what those numbers mean. Owners don't understand what those, they see that it's been done. Okay. I've met the, the regulatory requirement. Um, the annual was done. I trust the mechanic. He's done what he's supposed to do, but they really don't understand the, uh, the gravity of those numbers, and what it could be telling them long-term as far as a trend or some sort of issue that's starting to develop.
1: Absolutely, I I think it's gonna be really important again beginning of the investigation we just started FAA is probably looking for the aircraft logbooks they're looking for the last annual inspection they're looking for the 43.9 entry for the work that was done and what the numbers were they're going to look for the 43.11 entry for who did the inspection which was probably the owner I mean they're going to get that information and they're going to work backwards if they can if they can find it and they're going to they're going to try to figure that out if you know if all of a sudden it should he was at 58 or 61, 61 over 80, you know, did he, did he go that next step to try to figure out why that big drop was?
0: Yeah. And then what about a borescope? I mean, is that standard practice? Should that be standard practice? Is that something that if you are taking the airplane to a shop, um, you'd at least least like the, the mechanic to take a look inside the cylinders? Is that going to tell you anything?
1: Absolutely. I would totally recommend it. But here we go again. We're going back to service letters, service instructions, service bulletins. Okay, most of that resides in service bulletins. Some of the manufacturers has updated the information and put that directly in the manual. And if you're following the ICAs, you know, if you're following the ICAs correctly, then you're going to do those things. But in this particular case, in the picture that you see there where the rings had separated, not knowing how long it had happened and not knowing what the last inspection was, in the cylinder bores, when you're doing the borescope inspection, you may have actually seen when the crosshatch pattern is now weared off and the cylinder is broken and the cylinder becomes smooth, when you get that separation as, as, the, as the compression occurs during the ignition sequence and you get the pressure in there, those pieces are going to be separated and you may see it on the walls may see a wear mark you'll see you'll see some sort of anomaly that's vertically scoring up and down the wall could be the the piece moving the way that it moves that's kind of the things that you're looking for in there you're looking for a nice you not only are you looking for cracks and everything else and burnt valves and 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 corrosion at the top and the top of the pistons you're looking at the condition of the walls are the walls perfectly clean all the way down or is there, you know, a double ring stroke at the top or, you know, to show other things. You're you're looking for other things when you're in there looking.
2: Yeah, there's no. telltale signs for all of this uh, that was found here around the, the pistons. There's telltale signs in every single cylinder before those failures show up. So they're plainly obvious. And, and a boroscope can help immensely. And what I find frustrating today is you can buy, a boroscope that attaches to your cell phone. A tiny little camera. Absolutely. They're yes. 50 bucks roughly, plus or minus $10. 50 bucks. You can walk around. When the plugs are out, stick it down inside there. Look around. right? And it won't take very long before you'll be able to identify inside that engine what normal is and what's not normal. right? It's just the technology today is such... I mean, these things will fit inside the... Uh, uh, A 200,000 inch hole. So it's really amazing where the technology built in lights and they're clear as hell.
0: So. Um,
1: And you can take snapshots. And and if you have a question about something that you see, you take a quick snapshot of it. You send it to your your, your other local IA that lives in the area at the airport. Hey, look, I just saw this inside. What do you think of this? Yep. Easy way to ask questions.
0: Yeah, we we have the technology, so there's no excuse not to use the technology and the tools to enhance aviation safety. And especially, you know, as, a, as an owner of an aircraft, we all get in tune. Even if you're a renter, but you rent the same airplane or you belong to a flying club and things like that, you get to know the idiosyncrasies of a particular airplane since you're flying it so much. I knew every little vibration in my Comanche because, I mean, if, I could feel, you know, if that yoke was buzzing a little bit, that was not normal. And then under some circumstances, if there was a little bit of a vibration in the airframe, I either knew that, yeah, that's, that's always been here, or no, it's a little more pronounced or something like that. Here, you got a situation, according to the NTSB, and at least what they're surmising in this prelim is that there was a rough running engine. And again, based on what you see, this rough-running engine couldn't have just started on that particular day. They had to be, I believe, some telltale signs leading up to this particular issue.
2: I think he's been—he was living with engine problems for a while. Vibrations, wow. noises, uh, popping type noises. I think he was living with with all of that for a while. Yeah. And mean, what... All right, Jason, go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: Uh, no, John. What I was going to say is, you know, looking at the pictures, I, and I hope you guys can put the pictures up, and hopefully, people go and have a look at this, and they yeah, actually we're going to uh, we're,
0: we're going to put the NTSB prelim with those pictures on the website.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's two key things here for lifters when you're having a look at lifters. As an inspector, when I, when, when I go out as an investigator and we crack them and we're going to have a look at them, you know, one of the things when you have cam lifters spalling or, you know, corrosion over time, which turns into this, which turns into spawn, which turns into corrosion, which there's this picture is really definitive. There's two key things in this picture. First of all, number two, I. When you're looking at the number two intake, at the top, you'll see the chip, okay? It's gotten so bad that the corrosion has reached the edge and it's going to definitively start coming apart, okay? The lifter is going to come apart. The second key about the ones that show the damage, so all of the intakes are bad, and the number three exhaust. What you see is what we can't see is because we didn't see it, and the NTSB didn't mention it. Again, you got to get into the facts, and you got to wait for this to come out. But from doing the investigations and from this, you'll know that this kind of wear on the lifter rounds out the lobes on the cam. And it wears the cam out and that then changes the timing of the engine. So there's a whole nother separate issue as we know that it's wearing and the iron's gone up and we know that the lifters are coming apart and we know the cam's getting worn. We don't know to what level yet. And we know the number four exhaust has a cracked body. There's def- the, we, we're right at a, a catastrophic event here coming soon. We've got all of that. And you can tell from the again from the lifter bodies, they're not smoothed over. Normally when the corrosion kind of stops and, and the cam wears in and wears down a little bit, it smooths it out. Well, this is, these are still rough and rigid and they're not smoothed out. So the damage is continuing and it's only going to get worse. It doesn't, it never fixes itself. It only gets worse.
0: And the thing that concerns me is that, again, when you think about it as a pilot, you taxi out of course, you you know, you're supposed to be doing an engine run up mag check and all that kind of stuff before you end up pushing the power up to take off. He gets through that, who knows what kind of uh, roughness uh, he may have been experiencing. And then of course, with high density altitude, we always know about whether or not the taxi's real long or, of course, at high altitude, you have to lean the mixture so that you don't have an overly rich mixture, which of course could give you you know a, a bit of a false rough running engine that is it is going to run rough but if it was a mechanical problem causing the rough running engine you may mistake it for oh, i just got to lean the mixture and it'll go away all that being said now you got a pilot who pushes the power up he's running down the runway the airplane isn't as is isn't accelerating as it should And all of a sudden, it's like, okay, I mean, I'm I'm familiar with this airplane. I know what it feels like when it does accelerate under normal conditions. It's not flying the way it should be flying. I mean, those are the kinds of cues that you've got to recognize going, something's not right here. We're going to shut it down and figure it out. And again, the board has said that there was a, it's a pronounced rough running engine. Based on what they could determine from the available evidence, which would suggest that if it's happening so that somebody on the outside can determine it, you got to figure that the pilot knew something was going on, yet continued that takeoff, got the airplane in the air, and bad things started to happen. And then, of course, rather than, again, we talk about this all the time from an operational standpoint, that if you've got a problem, and it's apparent that, yeah, this engine didn't necessarily quit but the reduction in power because of its uh, performance wasn't uh, enough to keep the airplane or at least sustain flight. The pilot had to make a determination. He made the determination to try and return to the airport, but the surveillance video shows that he was hanging that airplane on the propeller as he's trying to make the turn. Again, John preaches it at the, the end of every show, and that is having that plan in mind to what you're going to do in the event of especially if you got either a loss of power or complete engine failure what you're going to do with that airplane at two three four hundred feet it is not turning around and coming back your first motion your first instinct has to be shove the nose over yeah. and get back to the best glide speed because you know you're going down it's just a matter of where and as long as that airplane is under control you get to pick where you're going and control the airplane to get there soon as you hang that airplane on the prop you get into an aerodynamic stall that airplane's going to dictate where you're going no longer are you going to dictate where you're going and it's just very 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 frustrating when you see accidents and according to some of the uh comments that I've seen regarding this particular pilot, they they said, oh, he was very experienced. He, He participated in angel flights and things like that. That's all admirable. We don't know exactly how much flight time in this airplane or total experience. But again, if you have, quote, an experienced pilot, then why is he doing things that are counterintuitive to the things that we write about, the things that we talk about, the things that we teach? With regard to if you lose an engine or cannot sustain flight because you have an engine problem, you're basically going straight ahead and you want to go straight ahead under control, not out of control.
2: And you know what it sounds like? Uh, Too familiar with the operation. You know, he's going back to his home airport, which was only, uh, you know, 10 or 15 minutes away. Uh, It sounds like he went there because to this airport to get fuel. Maybe it was cheaper than what he had available at his home airport. Maybe the home airport's his backyard for all we know. But in any event, I think we all get lapses in our operation when we're familiar with it going back and forth. He's probably gone back and forth many times and just felt it was a, it's a no brainer. I don't have to do anything because I do it all the time. When in fact, you need to be thinking about it, especially if he's nursing a bad engine. If he's nursing an engine, it runs rough once in a while. And even if he doesn't know why, he's got to be careful, more careful than you normally would be. And there's no evidence whatsoever that he was at any careful. I mean, he was just flying around willy-nilly.
0: Well, one of the uh, the last points I want to talk about and throw out to you guys, because the the three of us have investigated these accidents and, and incidents. And actually, we've seen it not only in G.A., But also in uh, in airline operations, and that is, you got an airplane that's at an outstation we're talking big airplanes commercial operators that kind of stuff, where they may not have the appropriate services, yet, the crew decides they're going to try and milk this airplane back to to a home plate or you know home base where they know maintenance exists. Now you have a general aviation pilot who's at an airport that may not have maintenance services um, necessary and all of a sudden now they go, well, I'm only 10 minutes away. I'm only 15 minutes away. If I can get the airplane in the air, I can get it back to my home airport or where I know that I can work on the airplane because I got my tools and that kind of stuff. I don't want to leave the airplane at this you know, this airport. Those kinds of influences factor into decision-making, and a lot of times it's poor decision-making, and that's when the three of us end up going to work. Jace, I mean, again, you live in an environment where, yeah, you have an airplane out in the boonies, you know, what, what is the mentality of trying to milk it back to some place rather than, you know what, it's going to cost me a little bit, but I've got to get somebody out there to fix it before I fly it.
1: Yeah, that doesn't, there's, there, we, there are so many stories, so many stories. And what it's traditionally called is you don't see it in the lower 48 states, but you know, the, the bush repair. (laughs) The <laughs> butcher, I broke this and I repaired, you know, um, I landed and hit a tree and I caved in my Ford uh, uh lift strut, wing lift strut. So I cut down a tree and I took the tree <laughs> and I wrapped the tree around the lift strut, or I just so happened to have a two by four at my cat. You know, you kind of hear some of these stories, and every now and then pictures squeak out where somebody took a picture and you see that, but uh, you know. Sometimes, you know, I've investigated things, you know, I've investigated uh, complaints that have come in before where people have, uh, you know, had events where they've damaged their aircraft out in the bush, and they're just, an, they're just a, pilot, a, a private pilot, but yet they, they got somebody to come pick them up in another cub, flew them back into town, picked up a new engine mount, new dynafogles, new propeller and everything, not a mechanic, went back out in the bush, fixed it all, <laughs> put it all back together, and then flew it out. You know, mm-hmm. without anybody looking at it with an air, with an engine that, had, you know, had a you know, prop strike and everything else. They just fixed what they could and then, and then they flew it. It does happen. It does happen because uh, when you get stranded here, you're you're stranded. So you can pick up the satellite phone and call a local helicopter operation to come sling you out. But, uh, you know, uh, most most of the people just try to see if they could fix it themselves or get someone to help them fix it. We We do have that. That does happen here.
2: A lot. A wild Wild West,
0: yeah, uh,
1: absolutely. It, it's, absolutely, it still is.
0: Yeah, well, I think the takeaways <clears throat> from this particular accident, which is still under investigation, and uh, we're looking forward to, uh, to seeing what else the NTSB may find in their investigation. I'd like to know what this pilot's experience was as far as flying the airplane. I'd definitely like to know um, if, in fact, he was a uh, qualified AMP mechanic to be working on his airplane or if someone else was working on the airplane, who that was because if this was a shop of some sort or you know some formal organization doing maintenance and they missed these kinds of things with the engine, that's of great concern. And of course, not only should the NTSB be concerned, but of course the FAA. Um, but the takeaway again is you're in tune with this airplane. It's kind of like driving your car. If all of a sudden the steering wheel starts shaking, you know that you got some sort of problem with a tire or the front end. You're not going to continue to drive it till you have a bad situation happen that may cause a loss of control. You really got to be plugged in. When it comes to these inspections, as as you guys were talking about, you know there are little telltale signs. Yeah, the engine isn't running like it used to run. Maybe there's an issue starting to develop. The oil analysis, you really need to understand that oil analysis and look at the recommendations like you were talking about, Jason, because again, that's the developing story. And it's better to get somebody to look at it who is plugged in and knows this so that they can do a thorough examination rather than waiting to, I'll just see if it gets worse. If it gets worse, then I'll deal with it. A lot of times you may not be around as it's getting worse so uh you know it's it's all about that, and then, of course, from an operational standpoint, if you've got a problem at low altitude, especially on takeoff, and that airplane isn't performing as it should, and you're only two, three, four hundred feet, you do not do not want to try and come back as much as we want to think as pilots that we are really good, even an experienced pilot and the three of us all know a bunch of guys who have tried to do that, um, where with their high level of experience, little overconfidence, I can make it happen, and they didn't, and, and it's a very disconcerting uh, course of events where every time I read these prelims and I see a video where it, I mean, the guy was out in the middle of nowhere. It's like Havasu. Yeah, there were some buildings around, but there were also some clear areas around you know you fly the airplane straight ahead, and at least if you're going in you're going in under control, not out of control and and John, you and I were talking before the show you had kind of a uh, an interesting take on it if you owned an airport um, and I, I just think that you need to share that because I thought it was uh it was entertaining, but you know what it's kind of practical or logical
2: you know so here you have an airport that's out in the middle of the desert and if I owned that airport, I would have got myself a piece of equipment and went off the end of the runway, and I would have just bulldozed everything out of the way and gave a spot for people to dump their airplane on takeoff, right? Maybe a mile up from the end of the airport and just clear an area that's right in line with the runway. And the reason why I said that is I did a number of railroad accidents out there in, the, in Arizona, and there's a line that's... Uh, runs from Kingman East, and they have a lot of washouts out there. And one of the railroad guys got in trouble because he was doing just that on the property adjacent to the railroad. There's nothing around it. But the railroad, he got in trouble with his bosses, not with the property owners, because he would come in and dress the land around the tracks to flow the water so it caused the least amount of problems for the railroad. Because out in that area, washing out or washing under the tracks causes a lot of derailments. And that particular line is running multiple Amtrak trains a day coming from the east. And they're going fast. They're going 80 miles an hour or more. And so he was protecting his section of track from getting washed out. And when his bosses found out what he was doing, they, they weren't too happy with him. Because they're looking at it from the legal side. They don't own the land. But the people who do own the land uh, really weren't concerned about it because there's nothing there. They're not, there's no plans to do anything with it at the you know, immediate time. And all he was doing was dressing it. He wasn't yeah. digging holes or, or anything like that. So I, I thought that you know if I had an airport out there, I would clear some land out. So if I ever had a problem coming out of that place, I'd have a place to put it down instead of trying that uh, so-called impossible turn.
0: Yeah. Which yeah no it's, it, it, it is part very, of people. Yeah, it is just very frustrating. Well, um, I appreciate uh, my two maintenance gurus um, dissecting this particular accident. Uh, we hope that uh, it's informative to you, the listener and the viewer. You can always reach us at the Flight at gmail.com. We always are interested in your feedback and of course, uh, suggestions for the show. And we're going to continue to dissect these kinds of accidents. We're really following a lot of these accidents now as they happen real close so that we can um, uh, you know, bring this, uh, these, these important points out to, uh, to our listeners and viewers immediately rather than waiting 18 months for an investigation to be completed. This was uh, a, a great prelim on, on the part of the investigator at the NTSB. They wrote a very thorough discussion and provided pictures so that uh, I I would love to see more of that um, for our selfish purpose of getting the information out into the flying public because this is where safety enhancements occur. So again, please reach out to us. Uh, We appreciate uh, the viewers and the listeners. Uh, Definitely give us a a positive rating. Subscribe to us where you can. Get all your friends and, uh, and family to do so because that helps us increase and enhance this particular show. Jason, I'm gonna give you a, a comment because I always have to leave the last <laughs> words to my buddy, the Honorable John Golia. So any uh, any words of wisdom from you, bud? Oh, that's to
1: you. Yeah, I'm
0: thrown to you, Jason.
1: Yeah, but you always go to John, you don't have to go to me. Look. Like, like you and I've talked about, I can't, I can't really actually wait until the docket's done. I know it's going to be 18 months, 24 months till we get this inspection report on this. There's a lot here. That's not here. Yeah. So, you know, once we, once we get this and this is, you you are absolutely right. This is the kind of stuff that needs to be put out in the forums, social media. We just need to post it and let everybody know, Hey, when you have these common things and you see some of this stuff, Look, you need to look into it a little bit more because there's more than meets the eye here, and you don't want to be this person. and And we need to be able to get that message out and try to put the brakes on the, the the accident rate, which is going up. Kind of help put the brakes on some GA things that are completely preventable if you find stuff like this. Yeah. So we just need to try to get that done.
2: And the, and the five year lapse for the oil analysis bothers me. Absolutely. On this airplane, five years you didn't do oil analysis. And he allowed all this, what we're seeing in the pictures, just to continue and fester. Uh,
1: this Yeah, I, I mean, when they opened it up, I, when we see the pictures, all those parts and pieces that broke off of those lifters and stuff that they went through the engine, probably several times, and little pieces and fragments. I, I'm sure we're not, we're just getting a very small tip of the picture there. But once we get the final, you know, teardown report and we get to see it, there's going to be some really. Good things in there that you know we need to follow up. We need to come full circle on this one make all that stuff available later on.
2: Yeah, when when Greg finally gets his hand on his airplane, you need to, <laughs> you need to make sure that we. That.
0: Yeah, well, that's uh, you know, that, that's why it. that's why we always appreciate our sponsor of Insurance. So it's up to you, John, to to bring it home. So uh, talk about Avemco and give us your last words.
2: Okay, so as Greg just mentioned, this show is brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as Avemco Insurance. Avemco is the largest uh, general aviation insurer. They insure not only how uh, liability uh, for flight instructors, liability uh, if it's general aviation, Avemco is in that marketplace, and they're knowledgeable. Not like going down to your local insurance guy, you know, and as I was thinking this through just now, I was thinking when I did my 36 Chevy, I went to my local insurance guy and uh, it wasn't a great experience. And finally, I went to one of the specialties insurance companies. Uh, Hey, I'll give them a a tough pitch. And uh, what a difference. They knew exactly what was going on. They ask pointy questions about powertrain and what I've done to the, to the vehicle and so on. And that's a, exactly the kind of experience you're going to get with Vemco. And the reason I can say that is I heard them live in Oshkosh talking to customers. And I was impressed by, by some of these people that were not pilots and what they knew and understood. So if you've got a need for insurance, give them a call. Mention a show, you get 5% discount which is not too shabby for just listening to us
0: go blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Only you go blah, blah, blah. The rest of us have some really good stuff to talk about.
2: And we do have some good stuff to talk about. So with that, without any more comments, I will say if you're going to go flying, pre-plan. Plan for an engine failure on takeoff. Plan where you're going to put that airplane down. Look out in front of you and make sure you understand what the terrain is like, where there's got to be a hole where you can successfully put it down and walk away from. And we see a lot of that happening. Right? Do a good pre-flight, right? free from distractions. We just did a show on distractions. I've got a number of, of emails from people that I know personally talking about their problems with distractions in airplanes. And it's not just the GA side when they have their friends out there with them. It's the corporate side and it's the air carrier side. Uh, distractions just break your train of thought and cause you to overlook things, forget things, right? So be rigging and clear. Do a thorough checklist. Right? Thorough pre-flight and thorough pre-planning for your flight. Three steps. Plan it. Look at your airplane real well. I love touching the airplane. Go out there and touch the airplane. Makes a difference. We, in a, a, a while ago, we did a show where somebody found the, the problem with a wing by wiggling it. Right? And the wing was, had spa problems. I, you've got to do things like that. It means an awful lot. It can make the difference between life and death often. So please, think about what you're doing before you get in the airplane. And if you do fly, fly safely. And not rusty. Yeah, that's right.